Hello, my lovely listeners. I'm Dr. Mary Barson. And I'm Dr. Lucy Burns. Welcome to this episode of Real Health and Weight Loss. Hello, lovely listeners. Dr. Mary Barson here from Real Life Medicine coming at you on Anzac Day as it is. And I am, of course, joined by my dear friend and colleague, the fabulous Dr. Lucy. How are you, Dr. Lucy? I'm well, thanks, Mares. I'm very well. It's a somber day for Australians and New Zealanders. So um, I guess we'd just like to acknowledge Anzac Day and recognise that it is a day where we do acknowledge all of those people that have been involved in the armed forces, uh, the ones that have made sacrifices either with their life or their health, and not just for the actual personnel but their families as well. Mm, Absolutely. And the sacrifice that, you know, men and women in the armed forces have made throughout the years really does affect the whole family. It affects the whole society. And I mean, I can say from my own personal experience, my father's father uh, died while serving in the Royal Canadian Air Force. And it really does, it reverberates through the generations. So I think it's important to spend time acknowledging the bravery, the trauma, the sadness, the sacrifice, everything. Absolutely. Yes. Fractured families. My my dad was the same. His dad was uh, killed in the Second World War. So he, as a little boy, grew up without a dad. And, um, you know, it, it is, it's important to acknowledge that these intergenerational traumas and uh, for their sacrifice, we are extremely grateful. Yes. It is interesting as I think about this day in an entirely different level and a far more lighthearted level, I always find myself thinking about Anzac biscuits on Anzac Day. It's kind of, I can't but help it. I grew up in rural rural Victoria in, in Australia and we would make Anzac biscuits. We would eat Anzac biscuits. Anzac biscuits were an important part of the day. They were a fundraiser for, you know, Legacy and the Return Services League. And, you know, I just associated this day with this sugary thing. Absolutely. So I thought it's a great time to be talking about Anzac biscuits and their evolution because Anzac biscuits actually you know, commenced really right back in the First World War. So in the early 1900s, 1915, 1916 was their original birth, the birth of the Anzac biscuit. And uh, it it is the Anzac biscuit of yesteryear is quite different to the Anzac biscuit that is commercially available these days. And I thought we'd just chat a bit about that. So, um, Mez, do you know the history of the Anzac biscuit? I do. I paid attention in primary school, Lucy. I completely know the background history of the Anzac biscuit. Oh, look, I'm going to take a tiny step back and and just say, just explain what Anzac is to people who aren't from Australia or New Zealand. Yeah, it stands for the um, Australia New Zealand Army Corps, and it's a in the, in the First World War, the Australians and New Zealanders fought together. And that's where the Anzac word comes from. So it's a, a combined Australia-New Zealand memorial, to, day of, of memory for our combined 
armed forces. So that's just quickly what we mean when we say ANZAC. Yes, good good point. And in fact, interestingly, because if you think about that acronym of Australian New Zealand Army Corps, it's actually not just the Army these days. It really does encompass no, indeed. all the armed forces, so Navy and Air Force as well. That's right, and all the wars as well. So it is an entire day for of of appreciation and celebration of the entire armed forces for our two fabulous countries and the biscuits. So and Zach biscuits, yeah. absolutely. So, <laughs> it's interesting because one of the um, phrases that is sort of snuck into Australian culture. So. Biscuits, again, for our American uh, audience and perhaps even people in uh, Europe and other countries, biscuit is a, is a sweet. It's what we use to describe sweet cookies is the American term, whereas I think in America a biscuit is what we would call a cracker, so it's a savoury thing. But a big, and, and the, of course, Australians who like to to shorten everything, it's actually a bicky. Yeah. So, you know, you have two bickies, right, with, your cu- <laughs> two bickies with your cuppa, um, use two <laughs> biscuits with your cup of tea, and Anzac bickies. There's a phrase that is sneaking around called Anzac cookies, but that's not really, that. Does, it's it's weird, isn't it? Because that's not really, I mean, it's not an Australianism. No. no, that feels weird. I don't like it. Stop saying that, please. They're Anzac biscuits. Anzac bickies. Anzac bickies, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and the interesting thing is that, again, if we just want to go into some legal jargon, so in Australia, Anzac Day is, is highly revered. Like you can't open a shop, you can't sell anything on Anzac Day apart from pre-approved, usually Anzac-related paraphernalia. So it might be an Anzac pin or something that is usually used as part of fundraising. Anzac biscuits have an exemption but it doesn't extend to Anzac cookies. So if you're selling something, you have to call it a biscuit. So that's yeah, just another. You sell it on Anzac Day. That's right, yes. Yeah, it is, it is, it is a very sombre day. It, it really is. It's not a day of, of celebration and, and waving flags, although that, that does happen to an extent, but it happens in a very sombre and respectful way. It seems quite different to the 4th of July celebrations, for example. Yeah. Okay, so we're going back to the history of Anzac biscuits because, like, I'm pretty excited to tout my primary school knowledge here, all right? Just, just let me, let me, please. All right, so in the First World War, we have got the Australian New Zealand Army Corps soldiers. They were sent to fight in the Gallipoli campaign in Turkey, which was a pretty ill-fated campaign. And the conditions in the trenches were very difficult and, you know, they that food was scarce and these soldiers needed food that, you know, could withstand the long journey from Australia and New Zealand and uh, that, you know, could provide sustenance on the, the battlefield. And so they were sent these biscuits and they were made with things that were easily available in, in wartime Australia and New Zealand and that was they were made with flour, with oats and with golden syrup and, oh, and of course, butter as well. And but a bit of uh, baking soda and boiling water and I have... And it is a tradition that has been carried on, certainly in rural primary schools in Victoria, at least. And we, very carefully, using the boiled water, um, made Anzac biscuits every Anzac day and would use them as fundraisers. So that's that's what they're made out of, made out of, and that's the um, sort of the, the history behind them. And they're baked until they go really, really hard, really, really dry, and then you know they're, they're basically you know they're going to be 
you know, around forever. The Anzac biscuits and the cockroaches are going to be around long after we've gone. Yes, indeed, indeed. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is the commercialisation of the Anzac biscuit by food companies. And you will find that they are vastly different to the original Anzac biscuit. And and I've just uh, looked up a couple of screenshots from a couple of uh, food companies that make Anzac biscuits and... You know, they start with flour, which is similar, which is the same. They have sugar, oats, desiccated coconut, and that's about where the similarities stop because then there is a list of vegetable oil, which we all know equals seed oils. This one has preservative 223, emulsifier 322, from soy, acidity regulator 330, antioxidant 307B, from soy, natural colour 160A. Oh, there's some butter in there some raising agents, some salt and natural flavour, whatever that is. So I think it's interesting to note that the processing of the simple Anzac biscuit has also occurred. Yes, you know, the advent of the processed food industry has had probably more of a significant impact on our health at an ecological level than than almost anything else. And it, it's almost, no, it is like we are all living this big scientific experiment that has been performed on us without our consent and without our control. And the processed food industry has a significant deleterious impact on our health if we let it. Absolutely. And the thing that is, I mean, you know, again, we're picking on the Anzac cookie today or the Anzac biscuit. It is quite different. The biscuits that you'll find in those packets, they have a shelf life of forever, which admittedly so did the original cookies, but the original biscuits were also baked within an inch of their life. And most of us these days... Yeah, they're probably harder than your own tooth enamel, honestly. Yeah, and they really kind of stuck to your teeth as well. Yeah. (laughs) And the other thing to be mindful of is that in particularly, you know, 100 years ago, we didn't have the same insulin resistance problem that we have today. So insulin resistance, you know, obesity, insulin resistance, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian syndrome, type 2 diabetes indeed, these were all rare diseases. They were almost unheard of. And so as people then eating sugar and flour without those conditions meant that their body was able to process that much more efficiently and quickly so that they didn't suffer from the harms of these types of foods compared to our current population of whom in some sectors of our community over 80% of people have insulin resistance. It's a massive massive problem. It really is. And the hyper palatable processed foods that are high in carbohydrates and often low in nutrient value, they hijack our normal hormonal regulatory systems that would ordinarily, when our bodies are in a nice and natural balance, would normally control 
when we feel full, when we feel satiated, when we feel hungry, processed food really takes these over and also activates the reward system in our brains in potentially really unhelpful ways robbing us of just like the normal joy we could get out of food when we can get so much joy, so much more joy out of these hyper palatable processed foods. All of this combines with sort of this perfect storm of a really damaging food system. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, this is part of, uh, I think the thing that is potentially harmful advice is, you know, just eat everything in moderation. And that works really well for real food because we most real food is moderatable. But once you start processing it and particularly ultra-processed food that is designed to not be moderatable, moderatable, is that a word? I'm, I'm loving it. Moderatable anyway. is a word. It's, yeah, yes, take it. Excellent. Yep. I'm taking it. So we've got food that's designed not to be moderatable and then we're told you must moderate this un, unmoderatable food. And so when you've you know, when we fail at that, it's like, well, we didn't tell you to eat that many. We didn't tell you to eat a whole packet. You're guts, you're greedy. It's your fault. Stop doing it. Just shut your mouth. And it's like, hmm, interesting. Interesting, isn't it? It is. And from an evolutionary standpoint, we've got multiple overlapping mechanisms that allow us to hang on to our stored body fat mechanisms that will induce insulin resistance so that we can store fat and hold on to it because this is what we needed as animals in the wild to survive. And we don't have nearly as many mechanisms to help us let go of body fat or reduce body fat. So already the the cards are stacked against us, but when you throw in these excess quantities of really sugary foods that our bodies are literally designed to want to overeat and then to say, if you overeat them, you're weak-willed. It's somehow a moral failing on your behalf is exceedingly unfair. It's like it's it's blaming the victim and it's not okay. Yes, you're right. It is. It is completely victim blaming. So this is just, it's unacceptable. And I just think that, you know, it's almost like some of this food should have a warning on it like smokers do, you know, that this food is and again, we'll have to craft our own label, but it might be, you know, this food is hard to moderate or this food has been designed so that you can't stop eating it. You know, definitely it has, <laughs> it's literally been engineered to be extremely rewarding to your brain's pleasure centers. Yeah. And it's interesting because there are there are food companies, as we know, that actually are excited about this. The Pringles ad, once you pop, you can't stop. You know, they have no shame. That's right. But they use that sort of ingest, you know, you're going to love this so much that you won't be able to stop eating it. And it's like, absolutely, you, your brain will. And it's like, holy hell, what is going on here? It is, I think, harmful to advise people to have everything in moderation when the food is unmoderatable. It is. It absolutely is. We don't, I love, this is a, a beautiful phrase of yours, Lucy, we don't need things in moderation. We need things in balance. Our bodies are clever. They are cleverer perhaps than we give them credit for. And if we allow our bodies to get back into their own natural balance, our bodies will naturally be healthy. Our bodies will naturally 
regulate our own weight. Our bodies will naturally move back towards health if we can remove the things that are preventing that. And a big block that is preventing us from being in balance is these highly processed, hyperpalatable foods created by food scientists in laboratories to be so rewarding and unregulatable. Absolutely. I mean, and the thing I think that is tricky is it's like some foods, you know, you can moderate some foods. So I think, you know, there's, and again, we humans don't know everything about ourselves. If we think that, then we're kidding ourselves. But there is particular foods that particular people find particularly hard. And it may be that you can moderate, as an example, I can moderate hot chips. No problem. I could have a plate of hot chips, I could have one or two hot chips, and I couldn't care less about the rest. I cannot do that with other foods. And you mentioned, Mares, you know, brownies. Brownies mm, for you. Talk about brownies. Offline we were talking about brownies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And for me, the one of the things that I find very difficult to moderate are those uh, ginormous chalk chip cookies that come from, like, Mrs Fields. Same thing. There is something about them that has the perfect salt, sweet, and fat ratio. So sugar, salt, carbs, sugar, salt, fat, carbs, all of that together that just is my brain's, you know, bliss point. Other people might think I couldn't care less about those, but I can't regulate chocolate croissants or I couldn't care less about chocolate croissants, but I can't regulate hot warm bread or whatever it is. Hmm. For me, it's ice cream. Can't regulate ice cream. Yep. Um, particularly like um, ice cream that's got different textures in it. So like uh, cookie dough ice cream, because it's got the salt in the cookie dough and it's sweet and the different textures, particularly textures that don't necessarily exist in nature, really hit my thyroid systems in my brain. And I just, you know, that's not something that I could regulate. Hence, I regulate that by not regulating it, by just not exposing myself to situations where people, where I, you know, have access to tubs of cookie dough ice cream. Yeah. I tell you what's interesting. Um, So, and it's a little while ago now, uh, my husband or one of my kids brought home a box of low carb ice creams. So they were single serve on a stick chocolate-coated something or others. And so my brain goes, oh, good, you know, again, back sort of in diet land where I go, you can have those, you know, they're allowed. That's a whole another episode. But anyway, look, I I did one, I had one, and I thought, hmm, it's interesting. I'm not getting the thing that I would normally get from ice cream, the hit, the hmm, the something. And then I compared it to I had some fresh beautifully fresh, quite ripe raspberries. And I had some Meander Valley cream, which again, for our audience, Meander Valley is a uh, valley in Tasmania. It's beautiful. They make magnificent dairy products, thick, you know, and again, I, I, I don't have a problem with dairy. So I had, again, just a blob of that with, I don't know, maybe a dozen raspberries. So like a little dance on my tongue. The combination of the zing from the raspberry, the taste, the sweetness, the furriness of the raspberry, that just got that funny little furry texture, that the mouthfeel of the cream. And I just thought to myself, 
why the hell would I eat this chemical concoction just because it's kind of got the name ice cream? It doesn't do it for me. So consequently, I haven't had it since. So good. I've noticed that my tastes have definitely changed. I probably still would have difficulty regulating cookie dough ice cream. I really do think I would. But for other things, now that, you know, my days of of riding, you know, the hideous throes of sugar addiction are behind me, I can walk past foods that I previously couldn't regulate and just like go, no, I just know that you're not helpful and I can leave them behind. And when occasionally I do have something a bit sweet, I don't like it. Like super sweet foods actually aren't particularly nice to me. And this happens sometimes, like, you know, if I'm – Maybe baking with my daughter and um Yeah, you lick the spoon or something. Yeah. Lick the spoon. Yeah, that's right. And we do low carb baking most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time. And even then I don't I don't it just tastes too sweet to me, even when it's it's low carb with reasonably okay alternate sweeteners. Oh, absolutely. And in fact this happens in my house all the time. I make something for the family and I think, oh well, you know. I'll put some sweetener in it and I think, oh, my God, that's so sweet. And I give it to them. They go, oh my God, Mum, it's disgusting. Wait, you need more sugar or it needs more sweetener in it. Right. I go, oh. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so, that's what's happening with our brownies in the fridge right now. I made these with with Lecanto, um, you know, a monk fruit sweetener and I made it to the point where it was just so sweet I can't handle it. And my daughter's like, mm, it's not very yummy, Mummy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> So, yeah, so one of the benefits, therefore, of going low-carb for a considerable amount of time is that your taste buds, they literally, your taste for the type of foods, it changes. Your palate, you know, palate changes because you can now start to taste things that you couldn't before because your whole mouth, tongue, taste buds, all of that system was just, as you use the word, hijacked by processed food. That's it. And that processed food robs your joy of real food. And when you just get away from the processed food and you, you divorce yourself from this, say, I'm not going to subject myself to this hideous, you know, um, global experiment and you eat real food, it's delicious. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, gorgeous ones. Well, on this day, again, thanking our members of the armed services for all their sacrifices. And we wish you all a wonderful day, wonderful week ahead, and we will catch up with you next week. Bye for now. Bye, guys. So, my lovely listeners, that ends this episode of Real Health and Weight Loss. I'm Dr. Lucy Burns. And I'm Dr. Mary Barson. We're from Real Life Medicine. To contact us, please visit rlmedicine.com. And until next time, thanks thanks for for listening. listening. The information shared on the Real Health and Weight Loss podcast, including show notes and links, provides general information only. It is not a substitute, nor is it intended to provide individualized medical advice, diagnosis or treatment nor can it be construed as such. Please consult your doctor for any medical concerns.